Coming to you from Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California, I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Today I'm speaking with Farley Elliott. He's a senior editor at Eater Los Angeles, a site that if you like food in Los Angeles, you've no doubt consulted many times, but he's also got a brand new book out called Los Angeles Street Food from Tamaleros to Taco Trucks. And I don't think you can come to Los Angeles these days without thinking about street food, without thinking about food trucks, without thinking about tamales. Maybe 20, 30 years ago you could have. Now you can't. Farley, do you remember, in what detail do you remember your first street food experience here? I do, actually. I'm not a native Angelino. I've only been here about eight and a half, maybe nine years. Uh, I come from a very small town in northern New York, and there was no such thing as street food. I grew up on a farm. There was about 400 people in my town, so it was all very much brand new to me. The first taco truck I ever ate at was at a small street-side operation over by the Marvista Bowl in Culver City, and I went because I saw it on Yelp, and it seemed like an interesting and cheap option, and I remember just being really blown away at the possibilities. And the food even then wasn't that good, but I knew that there was goodness out there. Right. And I knew that I was staring at a menu at a million different things I didn't understand but wanted to. <laughs> and, and basically right there, I sort of said, let me figure out what the best taco truck in Los Angeles is, which of course is an entirely subjective and unwinnable battle. But Hence the enjoyment and entertainment of that battle. Exactly, yeah. And that's what really jumped me up. Within my first year in Los Angeles, I had done over a hundred taco trucks. And I had a little Google map and I would pin places and send them to my friends and say, what do you think about this? And you start researching the background of how dishes are made or what dishes mean or where regionally they're from. And that was really the impetus probably seven years ago. Did you come then straight from rural upstate New York to Los Angeles? I had a small stint. I did two years at uh, Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. So I went to school, and then all my friends you, you know, are Central Coast, so they either go to San Francisco or Los Angeles, and a bunch of us moved to L.A. But I didn't move to L.A. with any visions of you know striking it rich in some big town or being a food writer. It just sort of happened naturally. So what sense did you have of what there was to be eaten in Los Angeles? Was it just like a scaled-up version of what you had experienced before? Or what was in your head as far as, was anything in your head as far as Los Angeles food and what that was? I really, prior to ever coming to California, would have thought that California entirely is a state of huge cities right on the beach. Like the, the idea that there are farmer's market or the Central Valley or an array of varying landscapes, the amount of citrus that's here, like all these things totally escaped me. Uh, I had never had an avocado until I moved to California at the age of 20. It just it was such a different world. Los Angeles to me, I started experiencing it a little bit in college, coming down for various reasons. And yeah, I knew that you could get good Mexican food. I knew that there was high-priced sushi. I knew that there was fine dining if you looked for it. But this is pre-downtown's renaissance. And so stuff really still felt like it was in pockets and little fits. And you had to go seek it out and be really active about it. And I just wasn't at that time. But I've since grown to become that person. Were you encountering food people in the early years? you were here? I always had friends who would say, oh, you've got to go to this place. You've got to experience that thing. I think what drives a lot of us, and this is certainly true for myself, is the feeling of being in the know, of wanting to be the guy who's got the in somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so pretty quickly I started getting friends who would say, let's go try this. Let's go experience that. I remember 2009 when Kogi Barbecue started being around. It was really a feeling of We've got to go. It's on Thursday night. It's going to park on Wilshire and Olympic, and we've got to get there and check it out. And you would wait an hour in these lines, and it was just the coolest experience because it felt like something you could only get in this city in that moment. Right. It's true. When that when that hit, I was living in Santa Barbara myself, though visiting Los Angeles often because it's more interesting than Santa Barbara. But the Koki truck really was a defining, defining moment of my decision to come here because... The Santa Barbara Museum of Art did a really cool uh, exhibit of Korean photography around that time. I went to that, and as a side thing, they brought in a Kogi truck. One drove up and parked in the museum parking lot. And the line, uh, one hour, I would have loved if it was one hour. It was well over two hours. Three hours may be an exaggeration. For some people, it might have been three hours. But I just thought to myself, I'm really in the provinces, and something really cool is going on in Los Angeles. Not just the trucks themselves, but like... What, how would you describe in broadest terms what that really cool thing was that was happening in 07, 08, 09? 
I think it's really, and a lot of people use this phrase, it's a feeling that anything is possible. Uh, you, you had pop-up dinners that were starting to come around. You started to see a little bit of the renaissance of downtown. I mean, Bar 107, I think, came around in 2005, 2006, right around there. And so it started to feel a little bit like, hey, there's cool stuff here. People are doing things that if you search a little bit, you can discover on your own and really can come to define your experience in Los Angeles. Kogi Barbecue, I talk about this in my book a little bit, has done so much more than just bring food trucks to the common cause. It has helped to really redefine the way that Angelinos think about where they can get their food. Broad spectrums of people who never before would have stopped at a late night taco truck now only not only recognize that it's a safe and affordable thing to do, but that it's culturally totally great and everyone can like it. And Roy Choi, the man behind these these trucks, these Kogi trucks whom we write about in the book, he's sort of become the Angelino these days. He's the, the, the living, the best living representation of this city, it seems to me. What would you say? Absolutely. You see through his array of restaurants that he is, in everything that he does, really trying to capture, I think, a little bit of an L.A. experience. So he's got this you know, Korean fusion lens with pot at the Line Hotel. He's got commissary upstairs from that, which is more vegetable-centric. You know, anything that you see him doing with Chago, with Kogi, with A-Frame, all feels like this is a part of L.A., but they're separate parts of L.A. that get to exist in harmony because this place is one big, great, happy mess. Indeed, indeed. Uh, tell me, in, we, we talked about your first experience of street food in this happy mess, but what was your first experience of writing about food? What, was, what, got, you, what got you, what got your pen moving about that subject? So I really approached it from the perspective of a guy who wanted to have a definitive stance on something. I love that idea, like I said, of, of, of being right or being in the know. And pretty quick, I was writing for LAist. I was doing these comedy show roundups and movie reviews, all sorts of basic stuff. And eventually I went to them and said, look, I've got all this data that I compiled. I've been to 150 taco trucks. I've been to about 100 burger places. Let me just start making a list of what I think the best places are. And I'll put a big stamp on it. This is, these are definitively the best ones. <laughs> and you put something like that out online, especially hot topics like tacos, like burgers, sure. and people are going to have an opinion. And so that kind of got the ball rolling. And from there, I was able to parlay it into a small freelance gig writing about tacos every week for a site called Serious Eats, which is based in New York, and then it sort of snowballed all the way to where I am now. How did you learn to write about food? Were you looking to examples or just sort of figuring it out as you went? I've always been a writerly type. I've always fancied myself as a person who would write in his spare time or, you know, was just interested in those kind of pursuits. So I feel like anybody who has that inclination naturally is probably a good fit for a job like this. But when I started thinking about trying to tackle it as a career, you do have to backfill a lot. Uh, I was reading Jonathan Gold the same way that everybody else was, but I, I wasn't necessarily going into his catalog and looking at some of the older, younger stuff that he did. Uh, people out of you know, New York, old cookbooks, like just digging in to see how people describe things. The truth is, I ran out in 2010 with enough words to describe something as salty. So you just have to figure out a different way to put people in that experience. And a lot of it now is describe the scenario, describe the situation, give them a feeling of the place. I'm glad you used the word experience there because I've I'm sure you've had this conversation as well, where a friend will say, even friends who are writers will say, I could never be a food writer, because how do you, how can you describe the taste of a tomato one more time in your life? And, you know, I, I think it's not, it's in, in a way, it's not, it's about the food, but it's not really entirely about the food. In Los Angeles, especially, it's, it's, it's not, you're not going just for the taste of something unusual. You're going for much more. What are you, what are you going for? I guess to me, it's sort of, it's like a cover song, right? Uh, you can listen to the same song, same lyrics, roughly the same melody, get played by a dozen different bands, and it can feel different. It can feel fast or slow or up-tempo or moving or screechy or anything like that. The truth is, tacos are the same way. There is an endless number of people out there doing their take on carne asada. Most of it is bad. Some of it is really great. Some of it is god-awful. But... <laughs> they're playing the same song. So how do you determine the difference? And being able to break apart those nuances and say, here's why it's different or here's why something matters. Giving the why is usually enough to get people on board. It's true. And then you can you can write all that without even stepping beyond the dish. But you're writing about the context too. You're writing about the place and the people. And you know, it's something I hear a lot 
well, not, not much anymore. I don't hang out with these people too much anymore. But people who say, oh, you pay $25 for that meal. You can make it at home for $5. It's like, well, I can't make my home into downtown Los Angeles. I mean, I can't make, I can't hire these people. I can't, you know, it's not about... It's weird to say it's not about the food, but in a lot of ways, it's not about the food, right? Absolutely. The food is a small component. I've become much more accustomed now as a full-time food writer to paying attention to things like service, like atmosphere. You, we're really talking about something that is hospitality-driven, and food-driven is, is part of it, and, and food focus is maybe a bigger deal at a place like a taco truck, but the truth is you are going to eat out instead of eating at home because you want something that eating at home just can't get you. And it can't get you an excuse to explore the city. Right, absolutely. This book is nothing if not an exploration of this city. It, the city's past, the city's current station, the city's future. I mean, we're talking about there's probably 55 vendors in this book, plus other things like you know markets, bacon wrap, hot dogs, people, uh, tamale ladies, that sort of stuff. These are the things that create little pinpoints throughout Los Angeles, and you go, okay, I know this thing, I know that thing. Let's move on, and you know, if I can get somebody to read this book and not be afraid of going to eat at a taco truck, and they try one that is the most well known, easygoing, up-to-date, cleanest place, and then use that as a benchmark for trying something in their own neighborhood, that's wonderful. That's what we're here to do is teach each other and learn from each other. You mentioned in passing the bacon-wrapped hot dogs, but what do, what do these things, people won't have heard of them maybe if they haven't been in Los Angeles a while, what, what do these things mean to Los Angeles eating or to the city itself, these bacon-wrapped hot dogs sold out of shopping carts on the street? Well, there's the aspect of this is great late-night drunk food. This is the sort of thing that people leaving a club at 2 a.m. are going to want to put in their bodies as a way to soak up the night. But what we're really not talking about is this is the way that a lot of hard-working families earn a living or earn a secondary income. And it's also the way that a lot of people choose to get fed in this in this town. You know, we are pricing people out of Los Angeles at an incredible, incredible rate. And the truth is... Sometimes places like dollar taco trucks, like $4 bacon wrapped hot dog carts, represent the only quality handmade meal that somebody is going to receive throughout their entire day. So we need to absolutely be aware of the different ways that these places are being represented, but also understanding that there's more to it than just throwing down four bucks and downing a bacon wrapped hot dog because you had too much to drink. Right. It's, it brings to mind, and this is something you write about in the book, in Los Angeles Street Food. The fact that there's the issue of, is Los Angeles getting too expensive for, for people to live in? Why is it getting too expensive? Is it because, is it because there's, there's some pressure toward you know, not building as much housing as the city needs, for example? It becomes a battle about the law. In, in, in the street food case, there's a battle about, what are the battles about? I mean, there's battles about whether street food should even exist, right? Yeah, there's a real push for legalization that's happening right now and has been for a few years. So how much is illegal right now that you, that you might eat from on a daily basis? So most of the trucks that you're thinking of that park off-site or park in a parking space on the street, they're going to have a grade in the window just like your restaurant, A, B, C, whatever. Those are licensed and operational through the city. Somebody comes through and checks it and makes sure that they're, makes sure that they're clean. But what we're really talking about is smaller vendors, people who operate in parks, on public beaches, anybody that you see vending on a sidewalk, the fruit lady in front of your DMV, those people are operating illegally. Uh, the city just does not have a mechanism set up in which to thoroughly check out these places, tax them, make sure that they are doing things properly, despite how much those people may want that system in place. Mm. And you compound that with about 150 years of legislation, of personal biases, of a culture that has said, this stuff is bad for you, this stuff will get you sick, and you've got a really mixed up system that isn't, frankly, helping anybody. Mm. Do you see, I mean, are you optimistic about that, about how this is going to resolve itself? I am. I, I think, you know, it... There's 
bureaucracy at play. There's always a lot of problems. I'm not saying I'm a guy who's even ready to step up to the plate with a drafted legislation that everybody could sign off on that would solve everything. I know it's a complicated issue. But if we can provide some level of no-nonsense legislation that gets people who might even be illegal immigrants on board with doing the right thing, with uh, making sure their places are verified by the city and clean and can be checked out at a moment's notice and are willing to pay into our system in order to have the right to vend, I don't think that's a crazy thing to ask for, and I don't think it's an impossible thing to make happen. It just takes a lot of different people to come together from city council members to vending rights advocates, and I think we can get there. Who's against street food? You know, a lot of people. You have brick-and-mortar operators. You have people who operate food trucks right now that are fully licensed by the city who say, I'm parked next to a guy who doesn't have his A in the window, and I know he's not getting checked out, and I know he's not paying his $1,300 per year to get his vending license or whatever the case may be. Uh, from there, you do have uh, people who I think are still a little bit fearful, and that comes from a food perspective. It sometimes comes from uh, an ethnicity perspective. Uh, there's a little bit of that built into it, too. Mostly, I think it's about a lack of knowledge more than anything else. The city is eager to make money from these people. Most of these people are eager to be fully licensed and operational. It's just a matter of bridging that gap. So some of the people who are wary about legalizing more street food just just tried it, just tried the best of it. You think they would come across, come to the other side? I certainly think so. Um, to me, there's a little bit of... of some, some things are going to be a bridge too far. Uh, if you go into the deepest parts of South L.A. at 4 in the morning and try to get, you know, carne asada grilled over charcoal in the back of an auto body shop, some people are not willing to have that experience right away. But if you take them to Ricky's Fish Taco in Silver Lake and say, look what you can get for $3, and it's this is like you're on a beach in Ensenada, I think that's a much easier path for them to take. And so you start step by step and getting people to understand why stuff is important, why it's delicious, why it's safe for them. And then, yeah, I think most people would end up coming around. I mean, what we're really talking about at the end of the day is, is food good? And most of this food is very, very good. Now, this book is both a guide and a history. How did it become that? Through conversations with my publisher, we had pretty similar ideas early on about what we wanted to talk about. I knew that I wanted to have a guidebook kind of focus just because that's how I've always been oriented. You know, ever since I had those maps that I would send around to my friends, it was, hey, go here. Hey, check this out. Hey, here's the thing you should order. But really, I would have been doing a disservice to myself, to the readers, to my publisher by not including what is arguably the most important part, which is the historical aspect of it. So the first 40 or so pages, we really do talk about what has transpired in the past 150 years from early tamale men selling in downtown Los Angeles through the gourmet food truck revolutions and even into what we've got today. And that helps to define everything that we're looking at right now. It defines the regional specificity in Mexican food and you know El Salvadorian, Guatemalan food. And it also helps to give us a context for understanding why there isn't legislation that legalizes this stuff so far. How into the history of Los Angeles food were you before the book? I mean, were you what, what, was it a personal interest at all, or did this actually get you to learn it as well? I learned so much just in the researching of this book. Uh, similarly, I talked to a lot of chefs about various things. At a certain point, every chef who's worth a darn learns how to cut a carrot the same way. And the technical skills become basically equal and on par. So what you've got to do from that point on, if you really want to succeed at a high level, is just keep learning. And that's learning about the future and also learning about the past. So you need a base to understand what we're talking about now. And that base only comes from old maps, old legal documents, old conversations with you know elderly folks about what happened 80, 100 years ago. Go, you know, running through microfiche clippings. There's a lot smarter people than me that have already gone through and done a lot of this stuff, and I was more than happy to piggyback off of them and learn right. stuff in my own regard. But it's it's equal parts fascinating and important. Now, when you talk about historical Los Angeles food areas, a lot of people are going to think of Olvera Street. Even people who have just casually visited Los Angeles know about Olvera Street. Some Angelinos write it off as just nothing, just a tourist trap. And even, I remember, 
Charles Moore's Architectural Guide to Los Angeles. He has this line I never forget, which is, it's odd that the center of one of the world's great sit- great cities should be occupied by a, a south-of-the-border tourist tourist trap. But there it is. I mean, is Olvera Street a tourist trap? Is it a legitimate source of sort of food that an Angelino should experience? What do you think? So it's sort of equal parts tourist trap and authenticity. Uh, that space that you're talking about, El Pueblo de Ole, which is where Alvera Street is, is actually the site of some of the first street vendors that we ever had, those tamale men. I mean, you've got to remember Los Angeles 150 years ago. San Francisco was the jewel of the West Coast, and so L.A. was a farm-heavy, agricultural-heavy town that had a small urban center, but nothing like what we're talking about now. So these men would operate in these small open plazas, much to the chagrin even then of the standalone restaurant operators. And people, you know, in the late 1800s were remarking that, oh, there are so many outdoor restaurants. This is amazing. Look what Los Angeles has. When in truth, it was just these very intrepid tamale men selling their wares on the streets. And that was happening right at Olvera Street. What you see Olvera Street as now is obviously much different and has become a sort of stylized version of the thing that we all think it is. But within that, location-wise, it still makes a lot of sense. And you've got places like El Cielito Lindo, which are doing you know crazy old-school Mexican takes that have been around for the better part of 100 years. So it's a little bit of a balance. There's history there. Um, you just have to kind of walk through the luchador mats and bad sombreros to find it. How much of... The best Los Angeles street food, do you think Latin American traditions directly account for? I mean, if I'm honest, I would say most. Um, we had a, a small you know, Chinese, Chinese-American population in the late 1800s that would do some street vending, but it was never to the level of uh, what we've seen in the uh, Latin American and specifically in the Mexican communities. Um, El Salvador, Guatemala, uh, those places in the 1980s have really helped to come define Los Angeles. You know, There's an argument to be made that uh, today's pupusa is almost as ubiquitous as the bacon wrapped hot dog or something like that. So uh, different cultures bring different things. But it is uh, traditionally a uh, Central American, Mexican, uh, largely Hispanic thing that Los Angeles has. And and frankly, I think that's what makes it great and so unique from other cities. Uh, Everyone who has any conversation about food uh, in a larger sense in America talks about how great the Mexican food is. But what they're not necessarily always saying is that the street food, Mexican food, is really, really great and equally important culturally to what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Was street food always your specialty in, in some sense or another? Uh, tacos were definitely the first thing I ever really got paid for as a food writer. Right. Um, you know, I, I cover, I do a lot with burgers now, I do a lot with beer now. You know, I have different interests that go beyond that, but street food was certainly my first love in that food realm. And it's particularly because it was so different from anything I had ever experienced before. Uh, I, personally, even I don't get over the novelty of, you know, being a, a, a heavy set, six foot three white guy standing in line with everybody else at three in the morning, waiting at the taco truck, speaking what little Spanish I have, but knowing this is Michoacan, this is Sinaloan, and being able to parse that stuff out and, and have a conversation about it and what it all means, that fascination will never go away for me. So how far has your Spanish come since you set foot here? I took some Spanish in high school, so I'm doing all right. Uh, I have I have mediocre ordering skills, and I can I can cuss like a sailor, but that's about it. But it's only coming along because of the taco trucks, right? You're only improving. I mean, as a result, it's like, it's, it's like learning the city. You can't not learn Los Angeles if you're getting straight food, just like you can't pick up some words of other languages, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's true of Korean food or a Korean language in Koreatown as well. This city has so many doors that are waiting to be unlocked for you if you are willing to dive in head first and have the experiences on the way down. And that's one of the m- most beautiful parts of LA. You can have every level of experience within a 30-mile radius if you're willing to commit. Now, I live in Koreatown myself, and I've been studying the Korean language about eight years now, I guess. I should be better than I am, but a lot of practice there. But there's also a lot of Spanish practice, which I try to get. I mean, there's a stretch of 8th Street that I I first lived very close to, uh, which is just uh, three, four blocks, which gets solid with, uh, we'll call them informal food vendors. I mean, what about Los Angeles makes these places possible in the center of a Korean neighborhood to have... Uh, a lot of vendors of all kinds of Central American and Mexican food that the cops don't seem to hassle at all. I mean, what what about Los Angeles makes these spaces possible? These spaces that attracted me to the city in the first place. 
Well, one, realistically, we have to say that Los Angeles is a safe haven community for illegal immigrants. They know that, you know, without the proper work papers to go and get a, a legitimate wage, there is the ability to cook great native food to them and that people will come and experience that. So uh, you've seen a lot of the growth of the street food movement come purely out of an illegal immigration conversation. Uh, beyond that, L.A. is a really unique city, especially in America, in terms of its size and comparative density. Stuff like this doesn't really exist in New York City because everything is up. You end up getting small commodified carts like the halal guys in Midtown, uh, which is not the same thing at all. Here, it is absolutely our geography that allows all these places to shine. You still get pockets, like you said, this little 8th Street pocket, you East L.A., you know, big pockets of South L.A., but... Similarly, you can think of it in black instead of white, which is you can drive through almost all of Santa Monica and not find a single bacon-wrapped hot dog vendor. It just depends on that area's willingness to curb that sort of stuff and any other vendor's willingness to make it out there and serve a community that wants it. There's Just off that 8th Street strip, there's a, a, a lady who, in her yard, sets up a little informal restaurant every night. I think some some nights, some days of the week, but not others, most days. And she's got this TV playing Spanish-language satellite dramas, and the signal's not great, so it's always jittering uh, the image. But the food's really good. Uh, and it makes me think of this genre of informal restaurants where you get from street food to almost like a restaurant in somebody's house and there's a photo of a place like this in los angeles street food it's the one place you can't reveal and therefore the one i want to go to the most this burmese place out there in the san gabriel valley right yeah it's it's in monterey park and what we're really driving at here is is something that kind of gets at the heart of all of street food in general which is something writers like me are tasked with dealing with do we want to reveal these places that don't necessarily have an interest in being revealed beyond their very local communities and what might that mean from a uh, fines from a jail time from a deportation perspective for these hard-working people so you're right i do show some photos and give a brief mention to a place in monterey park that does backyard burmese food and it's absolutely stellar and it's absolutely wonderful but of all the places that i cover in my book they were very adamant about not being given away so let me ask you this whatever you can tell me how did you find out about them in the first place you know anybody who's willing to dig deep enough on the internet for these types of specific experiences can find it i know i know go check it out it's great i should go on this i should log on one day and what happens honestly is you get into enough of a position like me where uh sometimes that stuff just comes to me. Uh, people say, hey, have you heard about this? Hey, let me take you out there. Uh, another great writer by the name of James Gordon actually took me there for the very first time. It was something that he had discovered along the way. So uh, if you're willing to put your nose to the grindstone and read, you know, I think I give enough clues in the book that anybody could find it if they were really looking. Right. You just have to have the wherewithal. And you want to have to you want to have to get great Burmese food, which I do. I mean, there's not a whole lot of that above board in Los Angeles, is there? No. I mean, there's little pockets of cuisines that I think are specific enough that you just don't necessarily find a lot of. Even you know, Indian food, you go to Artesia and there's certainly a, a plethora there, but you know, you can miss out on pretty basic things. I've been writing a little bit about everyone saying barbecue is coming to Los Angeles in a big way and we're finally going to have top-notch barbecue. And the real question is okay, when's it going to get here? And if it does get here, is there enough of a local driver to keep that market going? And the truth is, no city is going to have every cuisine nailed perfectly. And what you end up doing if you look globally is you go to certain cities for certain things. And LA is always going to be a great Mexican food town. LA is always going to be a great Chinese food town. But we can not really have it all and expect it all to be great. It's Yeah, it's it this is something that your book made me think about in, in Los Angeles in terms of what makes Los Angeles an interesting city. And almost everybody will give you some variation on it's great because of the variety here, whether they mean the variety of sort of film going or eating or the variety of clubs or what have you. You know, Variety is the key word here and maybe even diversity. If you're speaking demographically, that's certainly true. But I was reading this book, uh, a guy named Kevin Lynch, an MIT researcher on 
city planning, city design, city ex- the experience of cities in the mid-century, in the mid-20th century. He has this book, A Theory of Good City Form, and he, the thing that sticks with me most about this 400-page book is he said that they found that we want a certain amount of variety in cities. There is a point at which it gets to be disorienting, and you get to be... You know, too much variety is just too hard to parse at a certain point, but Los Angeles, I feel like, it leads the way in that in terms of that. It's always just almost to the too confusing point. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely, yeah. I think sometimes it's very easy for me to keep a narrow focus on the things that I'm doing and not really take the forest for the trees. Most friends that I have that are not big food advocates, they're not people going out and trying to have a lot of their own experiences, they say to me, you know, point me in the right direction because they have a certain amount budgeted for their for that meal and they don't want to go and have a bad experience so they'd rather have someone else tell them this is definitely a good experience because otherwise it all seems far too overwhelming you know things like mexican food things like food trucks you're talking about thousands tens of thousands of restaurants or pit stops or street food stops along the way and that can certainly be too much but for everything else even for fine dining we have a manageable level that i think satisfies every niche of person or demographic that would be interested in having that thing. L.A. does food really, really well. Indeed. And as you say, that you go to different cities for different things. I mean, when you want to go outside of Los Angeles and eat somewhere, near or far, where is that? Where, where, where often comes to mind as, oh, that's, I need to go to this city or back to this city and have some of this or that or try this? Or where are you always hearing about food innovation from that isn't here? I think internationally a lot comes up for me. Uh, Mexico City is a big trip I'm looking to take next year. That's a have place. you been there before? I have not. Oh, you're going to love it. I, I cannot oh. wait. Uh, you know, I've spent some time in, in Baja and in northern Mexico a little bit. Nothing extensive by any means, but that to me, Mexico City is really, oh, this is this is where eating happens, and this is the type of cuisine. And I know that's particular to my certain avenue with street food and Mexican food in particular. I think New York is also a really, really great town. You're talking about one of the best culinary cities in the entire world from every level, fine dining down to street level. Uh, after that, I think you go to places, old school places like Paris, even Istanbul, where they just have such a history and a melding of cultures. I know a lot of people who have spent time traveling through China just eating regionally specific foods. So it's about what you're after and the thing that you're really chasing. I think everybody eventually kind of falls into that category. Some guys really chase pizza and so they go to Italy. You know, some guys love sausage and they go to Germany. And there, there's something out there for everybody and you can overload yourself very easily. Is there any other great street food city in America? None come to mind, but I, if anybody knows, you probably will of where you can find a good pocket of street food in another region of this country. You know, there really isn't. What you're seeing as uh, a stand-in for that sort of thing is markets, halls, big food cavernous spaces are becoming much more popular. Everything from the ferry building up in San Francisco to you know, Chelsea Market in New York, different places like that. Those are standing in as what essentially is our grand central market. Look at these standalone vendors and you can walk between them and eat food with your hands and how great is this? But LA is really unique in a pure street food perspective. Every place has pockets. You could go to Minneapolis and eat like street Somali food from the right vendor or the right backyard, but nothing that's as dense as LA. Now in terms of your own food writing style and your your food writing career, tell me what the difference is between writing every day for Eater and writing a longer form book like this, like Los Angeles street food. What have you learned about how you how you work in terms of food writing? So writing for the internet is a little bit of what I call feeding the beast. Yes. Uh, we all call yeah. it that. <laughs> well, there's you know, you you got to shovel a lot of coal to keep the furnace on, uh, and some days are more fun than others. Absolutely, it's a job like any other. The cool thing about writing online about food is that I get a lot of opportunities to say the things that I feel and to help showcase the people that I feel are important. With a book, it's really a capsule. In this book, in particular, because it's one encapsulating this history that a lot of people can hopefully get easy access to and start to understand. But it's also encapsulating a moment in time. Most of these vendors in this book have been around for years and will be around for years more. But it is a transient thing. Street food places come and go all the time. So you really need to focus on a singular topic here and drill down as much as you're willing to and as much as you think your readers can stand. And this is the problem with writing about Los Angeles often, or the challenge is, you know, it may change before you're done writing the, the draft you're on. And 
you've got to you've got to keep an eye toward yeah the, the aspects whether food or otherwise the aspects of Los Angeles that stay constant but also you have to capture that everything else is often cha- is changing all the time right yeah yeah absolutely I mean there were between when I sent in my first draft and I got you know final galley looks before sending it off to the publisher there were things that we had to remove stuff that we had to shuffle around and it's always going to be that way LA is a city that is always bobbing and weaving and when you think you've got a handle on it it becomes something else in the same way that you talked about diversity I think that's true with our food scene it's true with our cultural scene so there's never any pinning it down. What you can do is pinpoint particular places and then make broader assertions about the type of place we live in. We live in a street food city. We live in a Mexican city. We live in all these other things. Um, but yeah, having a real handle on it is, is it's too much. Nobody can do it. Now, when friends or family visit from out of town, maybe they haven't been to Los Angeles before, have you, have you sort of given them a food-based entree as it were into the city i mean what's what's the way i assume your strategy has got to be at least somewhat food-based because of your career how do you how do you get people to grasp as much as they can what los angeles is my favorite part about bringing people who are not familiar with los angeles to the city is showing them the things that they didn't know existed and a lot of the times it's the same stuff that i didn't know existed when i first got here i tend to tell that story through food because it's an easy medium for me and it's an exciting medium for me but the truth is we can have different cultural experiences that range from the museum of jurassic technology in culver city to uh the San Pedro Harbor up to, you know, Deep Valley Thai food. So it's really about giving people a range and letting them, I call it kind of seeing the walls. You want to give them every option from left and from right and let them understand what they're working with. And then we can start working towards their middle. What's the thing they really like? So friends of mine who come and experience LA on a regular basis, we've got those things that we go and do now. But if you've got somebody who's coming out for the first time, give them a lot of varying highlights and really let them decide for themselves. Show them the variety. Exactly. And this is nothing but a city of variety. So uh, we tell that story through food or through travel or whatever, but you'll find something that somebody's into. There was this sort of sense, and you heard it said by many people, even besides Woody Allen, you know, 30, 40 years ago that you couldn't get a good meal in Los Angeles. That was before either of us were here. What do you think people meant by that? Because you still hear the sentiment from old people or people who haven't been here in a while or people who are very out of touch. They say they have this idea that you can't eat well in Los Angeles. Has that, do you think that's ever been true? No, I don't think that it's ever been true. I think that people have a perspective that certainly matches that sentiment, but the reality doesn't bear that out. I mean, if we're talking about high-quality Mexican food existing here for 150 years, there isn't anybody on Earth that's 150 years old that could say they predated that meal. So there's always been something good to eat if you're willing to seek it out. Uh, Mostly, I think, when I hear that sentiment, that a person just isn't willing to get out of their comfort zone. And again, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but there are things that LA doesn't necessarily excel at. We don't have a huge high-end fine dining scene. You could count those restaurants basically on one hand. We do casual really well. We do healthy really well. So if you are looking for a particular type of experience, there is a chance that it doesn't really exist the way that you want it to here. But most of that stuff is playing on personal preference and nostalgia. It's not really about looking around with open eyes and seeing what Los Angeles has. What types of food tend to be the hardest for you to write about? Usually it's food that I don't feel like I have a grasp on yet. Um, I I feel very comfortable writing in the street food space. I feel reasonably comfortable writing in the overall Mexican food space. I think Chinese food, because of its regional regional specificity specificity and its language barrier, I can sometimes still feel like an outsider, but there's nothing about that that I don't love. Uh, I'm happy to get lambasted in the comments section of an article and believe me, I do. Do you read the comments? Oh, you have to read the comments. You you have to as in you you are required to by Eater Los Angeles read the comments and engage with readers or you 
have to. Uh, I feel a personal responsibility. One, because sure, I'm going to get stuff wrong and I'm happy to make the correction and ideally learn a little bit in the process. But also because most of the people who take the time to sign up for an account and comment on your story are doing so out of a personal passion. It's more about that than it is a personal attack. So even if somebody's snarky or a jerk, there's a way to get through to them because I know that just by the fact that they're there, we have a common ground. And that is we're both really, really into this one topic. What stokes those passions the most of the commenters? What type of thing, what type of food do you write about in Los Angeles where you just, you you hit publish or you schedule it and you think, okay, this is going to, I'm just going to have to steal myself for whatever's going to come as a result. Uh, A lot of West Side versus East Side debate stuff always does well in Los Angeles. You know, dining scenes in those respective parts of town. I think really the biggest argument is always going to be talking about authenticity and I use air quotes for that you know uh, different people have varying ideas of what authentic means and then you know sub authenticity so you get into like what's what's regional Chinese food versus overall Chinese food versus Chinese American food and people can go back and forth and point at older and older newspaper articles saying that this dish was made here or predates that and people are one very excited to be right and two very very happy to have their own opinions validated you can tell me what you think of this notion but to my mind hearing about authenticity in Los Angeles, I feel like it misses the point of Los Angeles almost because here, as they say, it's it's a land where most of the people come from someplace else. They've uprooted themselves. They're reinventing. Authenticity doesn't really matter in a sort of inherent way here, does it? I think you're absolutely right about that. You know, and what is authenticity but uh, you know, one individual's powerful and strong stake to saying I was the first to do this thing. So, you know, you could argue that Kogi Barbecue's short rib Korean taco is the most authentic dish that Los Angeles has to offer, even though Los Angeles does a bunch of other authentic things really, really well. Um, there isn't any argument, at least from my perspective, about being the most authentic. It's about what does L.A. do well and how can we use this melting pot that we have to the greatest culinary effect? Mm. Now, there's there's food writing. We go to sites, readers of food sites, you know, like me or anybody else, we'll go to a site like Eater Los Angeles and read food writing there. We'll read Jonathan Gold for whatever publication he happens to be writing for at the moment. Um, or, you know, we'll, we'll also pull up something like Yelp, where we'll, we'll read sort of user reviews of places is that what kind of food writing is that? Do you do you read Yelp? I I have to say I don't read Yelp yeah. in that sense. Uh, Yelp is an absolutely great resource uh, if you are in a neighborhood you're unfamiliar with and you want to find a place that is open or has a cuisine that you're interested in. Uh, I think most of those folks I would classify as hobbyists. Yes. Some are eager hobbyists. And a few of them could absolutely make a living as writers or you know bloggers selling ads on their own page. And some of them maybe even do. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'm happy in any regard to stoke a person's individual passion as long as it's not you know, super harmful to anybody else. Um, So I don't begrudge them that at all. I do think you have to be a little bit wary of uh, taking somebody's opinion at face value if you don't know whether or not they have a background and understanding what they're talking. Right, and oftentimes on Yelp, I feel like people are just evaluating their own lives. It's not necessarily about the restaurant. Absolutely. You have people who say... You know, I went with my boyfriend to a barbecue restaurant, and I'm a vegetarian, and I hated it. One star. John and Vinny's, a wonderful new Italian-American restaurant from the guys who do Animal, Son of a Gun, on Fairfax, had a restaurant fire about a week ago, 10 days ago. Three people left one-star Yelp reviews because they showed up at the restaurant for their dinner reservation, and it was literally on fire. I mean, what can, what can you do about that? So if you are really scouring... Was this restaurant on fire? Yes. Done. <laughs> one star. Don't go. Uh, you know, if you're scouring Yelp, and if you're taking every review at face value, then you would be including those, and that's absolute nonsense. So it's about an aggregate, which I think Yelp does okay at, but it's mostly, to me, about finding people whose voice and opinion you trust and letting them guide you or not being afraid to ask questions to find out for yourself. Right. It's an interesting way that Yelp Yelp hasn't really taken the place of anything in that sense. I mean, I think of, to use a different example, people talk about Los Angeles as a, as a city where, depending on where you live, you might drive a lot. 
And there's this application Waze I'm sure you've heard of. Um, I don't have a car here, I haven't, so I haven't used it personally. But from my understanding of Waze, uh, it eliminates this sort of thing that I've heard a lot of where people say, you know, they, they roll out their secret strategies for getting from one place to another. No, you got to use Hauser or whatever. Everybody has their, their Hauser. Uh, and it's just, that talk is so tiresome to me. The supposedly secret knowledge of Los Angeles roads and the strategies you use to beat the freeway or what have you. And I'm glad to see ways putting an end to that. But at the same time, you wonder, what about other things? You know, I feel like food is still a realm of to secret knowledge to some degree, right? There's not really an app, Yelp or otherwise, that can that has diminished that much, right? Absolutely. And Yelp is a tool like anything else, and it's only as strong as the information that gets put into it by other people. And so if a restaurateur is not willing to go online and insert all that accurate information themselves, it's up to these commenters and hobbyists who maybe do a good or bad job. You know, Some of the best street food experiences you can have in Los Angeles are either underrepresented on Yelp because they've only got a handful of reviews because most of the people that go to them aren't avid Yelpers themselves. Mm-hmm. Or they're not represented at all because they're backyard operations that have no interest in keeping an online presence whatsoever. So you've got to be willing to take the blinders off if it's something you're going to dive into and uh, read online, follow people whose opinion you trust, ask questions, send emails. It's legwork, but hopefully for the right person, it's happy legwork. Have you ever done this sort of happy legwork and followed a trail down somewhere deep in whatever valley or deep in South Los Angeles, deep in deep in somewhere and got to a, you arrived at a dish that you were actually wary of eating, wary of trying. Has that ever been a thing for you? So uh, I think there's a lot of times where first impressions uh, can leave me a little bit wanting. Uh, but I, I have a pretty strong, and this is almost a moral stance, to try something once. You know, especially if it's presented as a personal dish from a chef or a personal dish from a region. You know, As I alluded to earlier, anybody who's serving you this stuff, almost without exception, is doing so because they love it. They love what they do or they know that they want to make money at what they do and it's in their best interest to feed you safe, to make you happy Uh, and so no one out there is going to say, let's get this one guy sick for absolutely no reason. No one wants to poison you. you, To hear some people talk about it, you might think they believe people do want to poison them. Yeah, and so it would either, that would disseminate on Yelp or if there is no Yelp, you know, word of mouth would be enough to draw people. You know, at that 8th Street backyard restaurant you were talking about, it would not take long for those locals to realize hey people are getting sick and they stop patronizing and then that owner loses money they lose presence in the community whatever the case may be so uh, you've got to keep an open mind you know you can eat uh, uh, pig eyes and ears and intestines and all sorts of stuff Uh, usually it's a little bit better than you think it is sometimes there's a learning curve everyone I think points to balut which is sort of a (laughs) semi-fertilized egg that is popular in the Philippines you can get that off the dollar hits truck Um, that's an experience that maybe you're only willing to have once, but there's something behind that. There's a reason that it exists, so maybe try to give it that one experience at least. Right, and I was thinking about Balut. I was in Manila a little while ago, and I was keeping my eyes open for it, but it's supposedly in, in Manila, it's this thing that you only eat when you're already drunk late at night. That's what it's for, and I was never in a neighborhood with Balut at that stage of the evening. So I missed out on Balut there so far. I'll be going back, but you know, you've written about Filipino food. You've written about the, the what's to be eaten in Manila. And that's kind of, if there's something that is the next wave, that seems to be it, yes? Uh, Filipino food? I think so, definitely. You know, uh, these things of, of quote-unquote waves kind of come and go. Um, but what we're really talking about, and again, to me, it all gets back to demographics. You're talking about the largest Asian minority in California are Filipino, Filipino-Americans. And so you've got an entire batch of kids who are first generation, maybe second generation, and they came up having, you know, zizig, lumpia, whatever it is at home, and then going to school and eating whatever Americanized peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, growing up, working in kitchens, cooking somebody else's cuisine, and they're all starting to look around at the same time and say, hey, 
why don't I cook the stuff that I want to be cooking? Why don't I make the food that really speaks to me? You look at a guy like Charles Alalia, who now runs Rice Bar downtown. She's using, you know, heirloom rice grains from the surrounding Manila provinces and bringing it to America and cooking longanisa with it. You know, all this stuff that is purely, purely an expression of what Filipino cuisine is. But he spent time in fine dining restaurants all across Los Angeles and beyond. So he's a dude, and he's one of many dudes, who grew up thinking one thing, came to realize he could do whatever he wanted, and is now changing that landscape. Now, you said you've been almost a decade here in Los Angeles, yes? Uh, what aspect of the city remains most mysterious to you still? I think there's always going to be mystery. Uh, you have to make peace with that, I yeah. guess, first of all. Yeah, I sort of... Uh, people who haven't been to Los Angeles much, I like to say to them that, you know, uh, I'm only ever living at about a seven in L.A. And there are experiences that are at the top and at the bottom of that spectrum and all happening within about five miles of me. You know, I'm probably never going to get invited to the impromptu piano karaoke night at Bette Midler's house, but it's probably happening within ten miles of yeah. me. Similarly, like I have friends who have gone to illegal unlicensed boxing matches in a warehouse in Downey like it's everything is possible in this city um, cuisine wise you know I'd, like I said I've got a long ways to go with things like Chinese food you know Taiwanese food Indian food I think there's a lot of really great stuff in the San Fernando Valley that still deserves to be discovered and really I, there's a ton of advocates for South LA as a region it's this mixed heritage it's mixed racial diversity and it is a very important cultural part of LA that is in and of itself larger than the entire island of Manhattan. It deserves a lot more critical eyes taking a look at what's happening there. And as far as food writing itself, you know, we can read you every day on Eater Los Angeles. You have your first book out, Los Angeles Street Food. Where do you want to where do you want to go personally with the form of food writing? Where, where do you want to take it for yourself next? To me, the happiest moments for food writing are being able to tell somebody else's story and hopefully link that up to a larger narrative. Uh, I love being able to touch base with individuals who are really passionate about those stuff that they're doing, the work that they're doing. And then if I can take one step back and say, how does this fit in globally? How does it fit in regionally? And what is this city becoming? You know, it's trends a little bit, but it's also self-discovery. It's about what am I interested in? What do I think the city at large is interested in? I think as long as you take that tack, as long as you say, I'm telling personal stories that hopefully have a broader appeal, you can write about food every day. And it's just a lens in which to see the city that you live in. And that's what I love. And what do you think the city's interested in right now? I think Filipino food, for one. I think you're seeing a big you know, regional food beyond even just Mexican food, specific dishes that exist in one location somewhere else coming to L.A. You know, Hollywood has a poutine place now. I mean, it's you're just drilling in that far to dish specific restaurants. That will always be very interesting because it's, again, it's a lens through which you can catch a lot of other different things. Uh, the most exciting stuff for me, I think, is, is still to come. We are a city that has started doing really, really great great things with high-end food using local and regional ingredients and we're starting to just now kind of get a little bit more showcase on a wider stage for that but you're seeing people move to Los Angeles the way that folks were moving to Brooklyn a decade ago and with that creativity with that influx comes possibilities and things that we haven't even imagined yet I mean nobody thought about food trucks the way that Roy Choi thought about food trucks and there's going to be something whatever that thing is that's going to break the system that much more you're always waiting for that thing? Absolutely. And, and to me, it's the most fascinating part. You ride around Los Angeles on a bike and you go, oh, my God, I've ridden by this thing a thousand times and I've never noticed that storefront. And then, you know, that storefront of the one next to it goes on to become the hottest restaurant ticket in town in six months. I mean, every time you think you've got a look on what this city is, it changes and always for the better. And it's always it's always starts pretty humbly, those changes. It always is the storefront you never noticed. And always, it's the truck you didn't think would you didn't think was anything, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even right now, we wrote a story not that long ago about a restaurant that's happening in Hollywood, kind of by the uh, cemetery called uh, Baru, B-A-R-O-O. -O. It's a strip mall, the most unassuming place you could think of. I mean, they're working a lot with fermentation. And the chef has a background in fine dining in the Caribbean. He's gone to Japan. He studied overseas. I mean, it's Korean by birth. So you're talking about this very absolutely eclectic mix 
personality, of structure, of technique, of food that all comes together in this one restaurant. And you might go in, find a spot to park next to some beat up 84 Chevy van. You know, there's a pothole in the parking lot the size of your bicycle. And then when you go into the restaurant, you go, this is fascinating. And there's half a dozen people here. There's nobody here. There's whatever. That's what LA can give you. In the most unassuming of ways, it can give you the greatest experiences. I've been speaking with Farley Elliott. He is a senior editor at Eater Los Angeles and the author of Los Angeles Street Food, A History from Tamaleros to Taco Trucks. Farley, thanks so much. Thank you. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can keep up with me at colinmarshall.org or with the LARB at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks.